Welcome, everybody, to the fifth episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. I'm your host, Dom Ishpone, uh, joined today by uh, Micah Goldstein. Micah, welcome to the pod. Yeah, it's great to have me. Thank you, actually. I have been looking forward to this opportunity to sit down and talk basketball. Yeah, it's very. It, we're at an interesting time in the NBA because, obviously, we just got to the All-Star break. We're at a little pause right now before the games resume. And there's a lot of questions we've had this year. Obviously, it's been a crazy situation with the COVID and the different itinerary and the rules changes midseason, the shortened schedule, guys missing time all over the board. What is your, just before we get into, like, our, our award show, what has been your main takeaway from this NBA season so far? So there have been a lot of compelling storylines this season. A couple of ones that I would like to shed light on here first I think the revival of the Knicks is probably one of the more underrated storylines because when you are recording a pod and there are Knicks fans everywhere, they will not let you talk about basketball for a full hour without bringing up their team, which, by the way, they have a defensive identity now. Both Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel, regardless of who is in the starting lineup, they have been the best defense in basketball. They have that going for them, and when you have a team in that area with that level of market, even we've seen what the team and the fans did when they finally went over 500 for the first time since 2013, midway through a, uh, an NBA season, and I think that that's a team that could be on the rise in the next few years to land a superstar potentially. And then I want to shed light on a Western Conference storyline there are two teams that currently sit atop the Western Conference standings that, before the season, people, not necessarily myself included, would have had both of these teams potentially in the playoffs, but probably not higher than the four seed. And I think it speaks to the versatility of those teams and the way that they're able to get the most out of their talent, because just how those teams look on paper is not necessarily quite as daunting as you look like Brooklyn or either of the LA teams when it comes to just their top two or three players. I think that that's one of the ways that basketball can bring back more of the team aspect of the game where you don't have to win with superstar play. You can win with collective offensive and defensive brilliance. Yeah, no, I agree with you there, especially on the teams you brought up, because there are a lot of teams this year that, for better or worse, have not hit have hit different expectations that were predicted. So, for example, like in the case of Phoenix, like everyone was hyping them up because, like, oh, they went eight and zero in the bubble. Booker looked like a legit superstar and an All NBA guy. They were bringing in Chris Paul, who just made All NBA second team, and basically carried a Thunder roster that was underwhelming in talent to almost the second round of playoff appearance. And nobody thought they're going to be higher than what, like, the fifth seed at best, maybe the fourth seed, as exactly you brought it. And now they're basically. A couple games out from the first team, the Western Conference, over contenders like the Lakers and Clippers. And out east, there's a bunch of these teams that just, like, definitely uh, outlasted our expectations, like the Hornets being, like, a legitimate team this year, um, with some of their guys uh, uh, overreaching their expectations. Yep. The Knicks, obviously, doing super well. And then other teams, like, just like the Nuggets, for instance, got off to a slow start this year. The Mavericks, sure enough, got to a terrible start. Yep. My Heat, regardless of COVID or not, haven't been the same team as the finals that they were. There's been a lot of chaos and confusion with this season, without a doubt. For sure, yeah. Some of those points and those teams that you touched on, I think COVID has obviously played a toll. In the case of the Denver Nuggets, I think that they're really seeing what life looks like post-Jeremy Grant and post-Tory Craig. That team really lacks defensive prowess on the perimeter. Jamal Murray is constantly behind the play. Nikola Jokic, as brilliant of an offensive player as he is, Maybe one of the worst defensive pick-and-roll bigs, not to mention Michael Porter Jr., Will Barton. 
Mark, I, honestly, I think Monte Morris might be their best defender on the perimeter. And that's, Aside, that's a scary yeah, that's, thing to that's say. That's a scary thing to say when you've also got Gary Harris, who the only reason that he's on the roster and playing at this point is because of his defensive impact. I think that that's one of the reasons why the Nuggets' ceiling may be a little bit lower than it was last season. But that's not necessarily an excuse when you have a player who is borderline, if not bona fide, top 10 superstar, Jamal Murray, a guy who is trying to really cement himself as a championship two, although he's probably more on the borderline of two, three. I don't know what Denver plans to do when it comes to the all-star break or potentially, or all-star break, the trade deadline and or the buyout market. I've seen Terrence Ross be floated around in their circles when it comes to a potential trade. I've also seen uh, a Zach Levine to Denver move, which obviously I think would include Jamal Murray. I, I have to say, a, a Zach Levine pairing with Nikola Jokic is the yeah. perfect. The ultimate score 140 yes. to an only give 140 team. Yeah, for sure. And that we've seen, oh, the offensive brilliance so far this season. The league averages when it comes to three-point attempts, three-point makes, field goal percentage is all the highest that it's been since the mid-'80s when it was the golden age of offense. Mm-hmm. I think that that speaks to just some of the talent in today's league. We're going to get into our all-NBA ballots and talk about some of the best players in the game, but there are a lot of players who... To choose not, from, period. Not, yeah, there are a lot of players to choose from, and there are a lot of great players, honestly, who will not make the cuts when it comes to just the top essentially six or seven players at each position minus a couple bigs. So with that further ado, I think we should go ahead and... Yeah, I actually want to jump into this uh, MVP conversation first because you brought up a great point that one of the challenges... So I basically had to pick pick my all-star team obviously in advance before the game. And one of the challenges I find is that there's a lot of deceiving numbers out there just like pure points uh, uh, per game, assists per game, rebounds per game, where everyone's numbers are just up because the pace is higher. When there's more three-point shooting, everyone's scoring is up. There's like a stat out there that um, I think there's like double the amount of players that have above the league uh, average true shooting from last season. Uh, there's guys league where average, league average true shooting this season is 58 compared to like the 55 yep. that it was in yep. in previous years that's been consistent. You can argue that like the beginning of the year was a bit sketch not only because of COVID but because of uh, teams basically playing themselves into shape, especially yep. the people who are already in the teams that are already in the bubble. We see teams like Denver and. Um, and Portland and Miami, which are teams that were very good in the bubble and have struggled to get right out of the gate uh, into this season. And this brings me basically to the MVP bout. What was your toughest part, like excluding the offensive numbers and like the point basic stats, what was your hardest part about picking your MVP bout this year? For me, it was trying to separate out how a player has performed and necessarily the narrative or expectations for that player and that player's team when it came into the season. Like for example, Damian Lillard, I think, is probably the biggest wild card when it comes to an MVP conversation and where he ranks among the hierarchy of the league's best players. Because, for example, I have him as third on my MVP ballot. Wow. At this point. Yes. So that is not necessarily any West Coast bias or the fact that I don't think that he has enough eyes on him when it comes to what he's doing in Portland. Right now, they are still afloat very much so in the Western Conference, and C.J. McCollum and Yusuf Nurkic, his second and third best players, have not played since November. Or uh, since January, excuse me, yes. 
Oh, no, so I agree with you. The toughest part for me was obviously a big factor in MVP is the standings. Like, basically, like, if your team is, if you're not only putting up great numbers, but if your team is, say, a top two or three seed in the Western, or in one of the conferences, and they're outperforming expectations or meeting the expectations of, like, the general media and the general public, that they'll be rewarded more, like, in the MVP standings in terms of, like, where they play. But then there's guys, for instance, like this year, like, what do you do with Steph Curry, who the Warriors are basically a 500 team, but Curry's putting up the same numbers as MVP year with basically 50-49 numbers like what do you do with a guy like Luca, where the Mavs are just trying to pick it up but he's basically averaging a triple double every game and then there's even guys like where it's like Durant hasn't played enough games Harden while he's been fantastic in the Nets tenure we can't forget the Rockets meltdown like does that be does that get taken account into his league there's just so much this has been one of the hard and maybe the hardest in the past 15 years just deciding on an MVP ballot even figuring out like who a top eight were more so than a top three or top five yeah so I'm not necessarily going to go into my top eight. I will give my top five in order. At number five, I have the Greek freak, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Number, so, up, so number four on my list. Okay, okay, perfect. Yeah, he comes in at number five for me just because of some of the up and down uh, year for the Milwaukee Bucks. Although I will say, I think that they're going to get right back to where they were when it comes to playing team defense as soon as Drew Holiday gets his legs back. Because they were awesome at the, at the beginning of the season defensively. Then they fell off a bit, and now they're coming back up again. Right. They were one of the worst teams. They ranked third worst in opponent three-point field goal percentage. And with uh, Drew Holiday back in the lineup, it was apparent in the game against the Clippers that just having him back in is going to make it so Giannis can be a ball hawk defensively. And he's still probably the most unstoppable player in the game inside of 10 feet. So with that being said... He's playing at the same level that he has each of the last couple of years, and now Giannis is actually turning into more of a lethal transition player. I like what I'm seeing from him, and I would have him fifth on my ballot. Coming in at number four... I was going to say, before you go, so yeah, the yeah, case yeah. the case for Giannis, 29 points this year per game, 12 rebounds, 6 assists, arguably one of the three best defenders in the entire league, yep. uh, basically averaging uh, nearly three steals plus blocks stocks, a game. Yep. Yeah, stocks. And the Bucks. I think the problem with this year with Giannis' case is the um, basically the fact that he's already is voter fatigue, the fact right. that he's already won in back-to-back years, unless like the Bucks win what would be an 82-game pace of, like, 66 wins and is the best in the league. I, you can't really make a case against yeah. or, like, for Giannis. Yeah. But with that said, I think he has to be represented there as, like, one of those, like, top five spots, given how he's basically been as good and arguably maybe even a little bit better than he was last season. Yeah, only three players in the history of the game have won three straight MVPs. That would be Bird, Wilt, and Russell. And... Even a guy like Jordan or LeBron never won three in a row, so it's pretty rare. It gets to voter fatigue, and even when Bird was winning three in a row, he had two finals MVPs in a year span. So I think that there comes to not only voter fatigue, but also playoff validation when it comes to his numbers and his regular season play. We've seen the Bucks' defense kind of melt down in the playoffs, and Giannis's ferocious style essentially be walled off. Uh, when it comes to the playoffs, and that's essentially where we are right now, where I could see him being a first-team All-NBA guy, being an MVP finalist, and finishing as top three, but I don't think he can win the award this season. All right, so who do you have next on your MVP? So basically, who's at your uh, your four spot? Yeah, yeah four. so who's yeah, at your four so spot? The four spot for me is Nikola Jokic. What the Joker is doing this season is essentially he is having the best offensive season that a center has had since Bill Walton. 
And when Bill Walton won in the 70s, it was because he was revolutionizing the game uh, as a passer and a, uh, a way that a defense can't really set up for this guy because he is a point center and he's going to be able to initiate offense both on ball and off ball out of the high post and even bring the ball to the floor. Uh, at this point, Nikola Jokic is on pace to tie Wilt Chamberlain for the most amount of assists a player or excuse me, a center has had during a season at 8.6. And Walt's era was one of those of high inflation, so even yep. then that's a miracle. Yep. It's like a way better statistical resume than yeah. we think. Incredible. Yeah, he's putting up 27, 11, uh, and... 27, yeah, 27, 11, and 9. Yeah, Basically nine. near triple-double again yeah. every night. Yeah, so similar to Luka Doncic, she's putting up similar numbers. But one of the things that the Nuggets have done this season is he has taken his game to a new level, and it's making it so the Nuggets are now one of five teams this season who would be on pace to have the best offense ever. Yet this season, with the incredible shot-making and offensive prowess within the league, they are still somehow the fifth-best offense. But that speaks largely to him because he is their primary on- and off-ball creator within that offense, even with a team that has Faku Campazo, Jamal Murray, Monte Morris, and some of these other crafty guards. I think that what Jokic has done with Denver, be it without essentially any kind of defensive anchor that the team can build around, it's been awesome. This is actually brings up an interesting point because I actually had Jokic in eight. So basically, my problem is I actually have in my fifth spot of my about a tie, a four way tie. Okay. So here are the candidates for my fifth spot, and basically I want you to just like gauge where I should lean here. I guess make the further case for Jokic because okay, okay. my four guys right now are Jokic, who's been amazing. Stephen Curry, you can argue has a similar resume to uh, Jokic this year. Kevin Durant, only okay. even sample size aside, he's been fantastic in the games he's played. And one of your personal favorites, Rudy Gobert, just really? outside the picture. Okay. So, yeah, okay. so I don't know if you listen to like John Hollinger, but he made a big case that Rudy Gobert is his third is third place on his MVP ballot right now. I think that there's a grand difference between MVP ballot and like All NBA selection. Because for example, there were years where I remember Dave Cowens won an MVP, but he ended okay. up being second yes. team All NBA because they gave yep. it to Kareem. Like there's instances where guys don't have to necessarily be the best five players All NBA wise, but still have the narrative, the numbers, and like the team success to make the resume for the MVP ballot. So like. I guess, do you have Gobert on your list or no? So, I have Gobert on my list if we were to include maybe the top... But not nine, the top five. Not, not the top five. So, yeah. so, One so, of the reasons that I think Gobert is never going to be able to win that award is because of the offensive limitations. Although I will say he is setting the best screens of any player in the league. I know that screen assists have become somewhat of a joke when it comes to NBA Twitter or just people talking about the game. But... In terms of effective field goal percentage, when he sets screens and points per roll in pick and roll, he is both the league leader in both of those categories, but without any kind of a perimeter game or an offensive shot creation game, I don't know if he'll ever be able to get there. If the term for most valuable player were changed to most impactful player in the league when it comes to an on-off Gobert uh, would be probably top four, maybe. Yes, I think so. Because the case for Gobert would be that he's basically a double-double machine, averaging over three stocks per game, yep. uh, incredible efficiency, but more importantly in terms of the narrative, the entire Jazz system, which has, by the way, been the best team this year in the entire league, is all built around Gobert's screen assisting, but most importantly his, his presence on the uh, in the interior in the paint. Yes. The Jazz right, this right. year are 6.5 points worse 
when he's off the floor than when he's on the floor. Yep. And it just speaks to the volume that Gobert isn't is one of those where just like the numbers are awesome and the on-off splits are great, but just like the actual individual basic points, rebounds, assists kind of like hurts him a little bit here in terms of like how you rate the, him compared to the rest of the, of the NBA. Yes. So I think some of the things that are probably missing from his case for an NBA MVP is really any kind of signature MVP moments and games that he has had. He's had games where he has made guys like Bam Adebayo or Nikola Vucevic look inferior to him. I, I, I saw the Bam one live. I, get, I, <laughs> I, I can attest to that one. So, yes, there have been performances like that, but there have also been performances like Nikola Jokic dropping a career high on the same floor as Rudy Gobert when he uh, dropped 47 and hit four threes. And this, and, and, to and, cut you off real quick, this matters because last year when there was the whole case, Giannis is winning, all of a sudden there's like the LeBron might win the MVP day. This was right before the league shut yeah. down. Remember, they beat back-to-back games, the Clippers in that epic game, and then the Bucks where LeBron went nuclear. Yep. That's exactly the same thing. You just need to have like these marquee moments because yep. like while regular season may not matter in terms of just like a game-to-game basis, in terms of like little things like that, it does matter in the grand scheme. Yeah, in the grand scheme of the MVP race, and when there are so many great candidates this year who have all kinds of different narrative or coincidence. Uh, and all, all, all have stacked resumes, too. Yes, they all have stacked offensive resumes. And while Gobert may be the defensive player of the year at this point, I don't know if he can win MVP. But getting some fifth or even fourth place votes by the end of the year, I could see that happening. So who do you have right now as your third guy on your MVP list? So I'm, I'm going to go with that my fifth spot, Jokic. Okay. So right now we both have Jokic and Giannis. So who do you have as your third guy right now? Right now I have Dame Dollar Lillard. So that's interesting. I have Kawhi Leonard. Okay. So okay. definitely Dame for me actually ended up being in my t- – I actually broke this down to tiers. Okay. So okay. tier one for me were the locks, and I had Embiid and LeBron, okay. which I think you have too. In either order. Those yeah, in either order. Ones. But definitely yeah. they're like for sure like you have to have on their ballot this year. Yeah, yeah. I had another group called the Contenders, which were the, like the legit guys. And that included for me Kawhi, Gobert, Curry, Jokic, Giannis, and Durant. Okay. And then I had a third tier, which is the outsiders looking in. They might get a fifth place vote and sneak right, in. Right, right. And that includes Paul George, uh, Harden, Luka, uh, Dame Dollar, and then Chris Paul, ironically. Okay. Well, yeah, the Chris Paul argument is very simple. He if the if of, the Suns end up being the second best team in the West this year, Paul will probably be fifth place in the voting. Right, because Devin Booker has been the common denominator there, but... For a while, uh, the Suns have been a coach and a leader away from really taking a step forward. And, and they got now their coach and their leader, yeah. yeah exactly. So uh, make the case for da- wait, let's make the case for Dame Lillard here because he's definitely an interesting guy where you can make a case that he's as high as you are, and also the case that he might just be like in the Jokic Curry range of right, like maybe right. just right outside the belt but not in. So what's been impressive to you about Dame this year? So what's been impressive to me about Dame this year is his unbelievable shot creation and shot making when it comes to the final five minutes of a basketball game. That was really for me where I drew the line between Giannis and Dame is. Who would I want in the final five minutes of the game? Because even if the statistical resume is pretty much where it was last year, the Portland Trailblazers are an improved offensive team that is somehow afloat because of Damian Lillard's play when it comes to the end of ball games. When you look at John Hollinger's stat where it says expected win-loss record versus actual win-loss record, there have been eight to ten games this season that the Blazers have won that they were not supposed to because of Dame's play in the last final five minutes of a game where he is shooting 
84% true shooting in the final five minutes. Which, uh, and I think like that's, the next highest is like 50-something or 61. The next highest is 68%. And that's Kurt. That's James Harden. James Harden, yeah. yeah. So, Dame Dalla is having an awesome season, similar numbers to what he put up last year, and the only reason that he wasn't really in any conversation last year is because, as great as he was playing, his team was never above 500. Now they're actually winning, and he doesn't have his second or third best players uh, over the final 20-ish games of the regular seasons uh, thus far. What he has done with the Portland Trailblazers is kept them afloat, and really push his game ahead as not only a floor raiser, but also a ceiling raiser when it comes to what they have done so far this season. It's just been spectacular. He has cemented himself as, even if he's not the best shooter in the game, he is certainly the best deep shooter in the game when it comes to shooting long bomb threes versus threes 28 feet and closer. What he has done uh, with the Portland Trailblazers, aside from maybe the Philadelphia 76ers game, has been brilliant and very awesome season for him so far. He gets third on my ballot. So the case for Dame this year: thirty points per game, four rebounds, eight or uh, eight assists. Uh, yeah, uh, 45, 38, 93 shooting splits. So basically, sniff and on incredible volume. I think Lillard's taking like twenty four shots a game or something absolutely he's insane. Taking, he's taking two point eight threes from thirty plus per game. Uh, and then also the Blazers, twenty one and fourteen on the year, which does put them only at fifth in the West, but they're also only then again a couple games out of the second basically of like being like a second yeah. or three. And that includes with McCollum having not played a month and a half. Nurkic is still out. So again, like. It, there's definitely a struggle. I could see it. Lillard sniffed that seven to six spot okay. for me. It was very hard leaving him off. The only case I have, the case against Lillard, um, I think honestly it might be on the defensive end. The Blazers okay. all season long have struggled. It's not to say like, oh, we blame all of the defensive problems on Lillard, but I think like when it, like your franchise guy is an offensive minded superstar who struggles on the defensive end. It's hard for me to put him like that high. If you look at all the guys on my MVP bout, all of them are two-way guys. Even like somebody as Jokic who barely got in, he that's maybe you can argue just because of like the whole system is built around him. And even like my other candidates, like Kevin Durant, for instance, is like a perfect like model of what it means to be a defender while also being an offensive creator. Right, right. Again, like this is like we're picking uh, uh picking like uh hairs most here. Valuable player versus most impactful. Exactly, player. we're yes, picking exactly. hairs here in terms of like who we want because you can make a case that there's like eleven guys that should be just on this five-person ballot. Wow. Absolutely. So anyway, I'm not going to move on. Uh, Kawhi's case, basically, awesome two-way player. Uh, currently average, uh, averaging this year uh, 27 points, 6 let rebounds, inter- 5 assists. No, go ahead. Is he really an awesome two-way player anymore? Can we really say that? Because here's the thing. When you were to line up all defensive selections, I don't think that he's in the top 10 this year. What the Clippers have done this season is rack up defensive artists when it comes to playing perimeter defense. They don't have any guys when it comes to rim protection. I love Serge Ibaka, or should I say I loved him when he was in OKC. They are not protecting the rim, and the Clippers right now are outside of the top five defenses in the league. When you have guys like Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Patrick Beverly, Serge Ibaka, even Reggie Jackson, who has become a better defender, and they're still not good enough like here's the here for example no i get what you mean it's basically the same argument like damian lillard the clippers rank 30th in net rating in the final five minutes of a basketball game that's dead last i think the key for having Kawhi this high or at least in my top five is just not even partly narrative based but just the argument that like the clippers have been a great team this year like if you look at it they were top two seed they were basically in that second spot behind the jazz for all like the last except for like a week 
they're still they can easily be like the second seed going yeah. in. Kawhi's easily the alpha of that team, and that team embraces what he's done. And I think he's been better, honestly, this year than he has last year, especially on offense, where yeah. not even the numbers, but the efficiency is absolutely insane. And that whole offense revolves around Kawhi. Like yep. partly, like there's the lack of playmaking strides. The fact that Kawhi is the dominant ISO guy, yep. and I think that that matters in the end when you consider an MVP. With that said, though, I agree that I think that the Clippers' defense has been overrated, especially because they have a lot of guys who like have like the physical archetype well, for it but aren't good yes a lot of that is the idea that people when they watch basketball watch the ball and now what happens have, they have great the on-ball defenders and one of the things that has made it so Kawhi's defense is not where it was when it was in san antonio is ball hawking passing lanes and defensive rotations when it comes to sliding baseline and even closing out shooters the Clippers have been among the league worst in clutch time as well. They rank 30th. Kawhi Leonard shoots 28% uh, in the clutch over the five you know, five minutes of a ball game. And while that is a relatively bad number because all numbers like that tend to shrink a little bit during the final five minutes, he is 3-for-22 on three-point attempts in the final five minutes of the and game. And he's had some ugly looks too, yes, like especially in the clutch. Has. There have been long misses weird bricks but yeah i think that his game when it comes to getting into that 16 foot range right into his kill zone that's going to always be reminiscent of a kobe or mj style of offensive play and he's shooting the ball well from there but the on ball perimeter iso i don't think is enough for me to put him in my top three most valuable players in the league Let's move on to the final two spots here because we both have him beating LeBron, right. understandably in the list. I've got him as the locks, and you probably definitely had him as locks in terms of right. the whole resume package. What do you think? Like, who do you th- who do you have as your number one spot? Because I feel like you, I know your answer, but I think like, I, I think I know your answer here. Is it Embiid? Number one is Embiid. If there were medals and people on a podium, he would get the gold medal at this point, even without playing in the All Star game, which is always fun, and he always has a great time playing in that. Joel Embiid has been the leader of this Philadelphia 76ers offense, and I think without another real offensive threat when it comes to shot creation from the perimeter, I know that Tobias Harris is good, but not excellent. I think that what Embiid has done when it comes to become a three-level scorer, he's shooting 56% from the mid-range. Yeah, and he's shooting 42% from three on, like, five attempts a game. It went from, like, Embiid is an inconsistent shooter to, like, wow, we can't leave him open anymore. Like, even conceding that might be a bad thing if you're an opponent. Yeah, absolutely. Embiid has been lethal from, yeah, like I said, three levels. He's shooting the three ball well, he's shooting the mid-range, and he's still an awesome uh, free-throw shooter for a guy that size. I think that his ability to draw fouls and make simple dump-off uh, dump plays to cutters and obviously adding a guy like Seth Curry to that offense has revolutionized that yes. team, yeah. Definitely the key this year with the Sixers is that the whole team, similar to Gobert, the whole team is built around Embiid. Right. Like, we can argue that this is like, oh, one oh, when Simmons is in the game and not Embiid, it's Simmons' team. No, no, no. The whole offense, the whole style of play, the way that they move on offense, the way that they create space in isolation for Embiid to post up, all of it rounds around this one figure. Yeah. And I think Embiid this year has the most uh, complete resume out of everybody. In terms of two-way impact, easily... Okay, so not maybe maybe not for DPOY, but maybe like a the fourth spot in DPOY. Maybe an all maybe we can say like an all NBA defensive first team or second yes, team. Let's yes, say, yes. Uh, offensively, a guy averaging thirty and twelve every night is absolutely insane. Along the way, so we haven't seen since basically Shaq in two thousand. I would argue as a Correct. center. Right. Um, in terms of even just like 
if you ignore all the individual numbers, the impact is clearly felt this year. Yeah. And more importantly, I think Philly has the narrative that drives people to vote in that you can argue Philly definitely underwhelmed last year, and they basically went from the underwhelming team that they were uh, last year to an awesome team this year that you can argue is a legit contender, all without making any notable moves. I mean, they you can argue that their talent is worse, but the fit is better on the team, if you know what I mean. I don't know if the talent was necessarily worse because the team this season is essentially the same a la Seth Curry for Jason Richardson. Or, uh, Josh, Josh Richardson, yeah. Yeah. Josh was, yeah, of course. But I think that Embiid's play has gone up a level just because of the elevated uh, spacing on the floor, and that's the Seth Curry effect. When you bring in shooters like that, it makes it so Embiid's room to work with in the 14- to 18-foot range is essentially him getting to an ISO on a drop coverage big. And when that is the case, and you have a player who can get in the ball in space like Ben Simmons, it's unlocked a whole new level of Joel Embiid, which is something that we've seen flashes of in the 2018-19 season. We got to see it for most of the season. But this is a guy who has yet to play 65 games during an 82-game season. And I struggle to think that he's going to play much more than 60 games in a 72-game season this year, but I think that six, uh, 60 would be plenty for him to win. Let's move on to the LeBron piece, just our final talk about the MVP here, because I've had a problem, not really a problem, but just more like, I feel like people are using the argument that LeBron deserves to have more MVPs and are therefore using that yeah. as like a narrative to like, he should win this year, even if like the Lakers are technically a worse, like at least on, in terms of their win-loss record, and they've been a little bit disappointing this year. 5-5 five and five without AD. Do you think that that is a, a legit case? Or like, are, like you're, are you, do you right. believe in that story that like, oh, he should win one because of like, oh, he hasn't won one in seven years and yeah. he's been robbed so many times, right. quote-unquote. Yeah. Like, what do you think, what's your uh, makeup of that? So... The reason that I had LeBron at number one on my ballot up until about a month ago was because he was shooting the three ball as well as he had since his Miami days. That 2013 season, yeah. Yes, and it looked like a continuation of the LeBron that we saw in the bubble. Essentially, two seasons wrapped in one. But now we've seen some of those numbers come back to earth, and he's essentially a 26-8-8 guy, which is what he's going to be for the next five years probably, maybe even the rest of his career. He's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. He's that good. One of the reasons why I think people have his status slightly elevated this season is the fact that LeBron will be all defense this season, and if he's not, it will be considered robbery. The Lakers are the number two defense in basketball. They've been the number two defense even without Anthony Davis, and it speaks to the versatility that they have at the guard position, even the wings when it comes to Kuzma, improving his play as a winning player. But everything uh, runs through LeBron. He is still the greatest floor raiser offensively in the league. He'll be able to get his. He'll be able to help teammates get theirs. I think the thing where LeBron slightly gets tripped up here is the fact that the Lakers right now are the third seed in the Western Conference. Actually, the fourth seed heading into tonight, yeah. Oh, right, right, yes. The Clippers just passed, yes. So they're in the fourth seed at this point. No player has won the... um, No player has won the MVP award outside of being a top three seed in their own conference since uh, the 70s. Well, technically, the eighties, except for Russell Westbrook, yeah, and that was the season when he averaged a triple double, and people and there was a whole narrative behind it, like, oh, Durant left, and look, it's just Lone Star, all that stuff, yeah. And I think the narrative really is where people kind of elevate LeBron's case to number one, even if 
the actual resume from what's happened this season is not quite there. It's just, oh, he might have been robbed last season, and he reminded us all that he's still the best player in the world, which, by the way, he still is the best player in the world. Yeah. He still has that going for him, but at this point, the argument for him, I think, is a little tainted, not quite as strong as it is for Embiid, but... If I were to predict who I think is going to win the award at the end of the season, I do think LeBron James will win the MVP award. I think that by the end of the season, really the race for the MVP might come down to just LeBron and Embiid. Uh, Embiid. And the thing that people are going to have to look closely at is just the team record of both. Especially with the Sixers, because Milwaukee will still... You can make a case, but yeah, Milwaukee's already been on the surge. Yeah. Brooklyn's won, like, you know, 13 of the last yeah. 16, and have looked awesome, and they're never going to slow down unless, like, three all three of their stars get injured. And I think if you're the Lakers, like, if you come back and let's say you're the second seed, because I right. still think the Jazz don't the first yeah. seed maybe by the end of the year. Jazz have the easiest remaining Yeah, they're the already first place with, Brooklyn like, yeah. Brooklyn the second easiest. Yeah, right? while the Lakers have, like, a mid middle-ish tier schedule, uh, I think. the sixth toughest. Exactly, they, they, so... The Lakers have faced the third toughest, or third easiest schedule thus far. And are currently, currently mid-seed. Yeah, so I think LeBron's case is strong. But it's only about as strong as it would have been a couple of years ago, his first year in L.A. Because without Anthony Davis on the floor, I honestly feel like it's LeBron and a bunch of kids out there, which is what it felt like during his first season in L.A. And the fact that he's still the best floor raiser in the game and they're able to field a competent team without their second-best player is awesome. The Lakers have been great defensively even without their second-best player. But I think the wins trip up LeBron as well as him not really being top five or the league leader in any kind of category. Last season, he was the assist king. This season, that has come slightly back to earth with the addition of Dennis Schroeder to take off, uh, off some of the burden. From or a good Jillian Montrez Harrell isolation and stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> right, so yes, they have the Montrez Harrell aspect on the team. When Markeith Morris has taken seven shots or more, and I, I don't know if that's necessarily what you want, now that KCP's uh, shooting, Alex Caruso's shooting, have all just completely gone down the drain. Have fallen back down to earth, let's say, yeah. Yeah. Especially I mean, KCP. <laughs> yeah, KCP shot 46% from deep over the first month of the season, and I didn't think it was sustainable. And It's not sustainable. It's not. Yes, yes. So LeBron gets the silver medal at this point, and... I'm assuming he does for you as well. He does. So, so basically, both of me, both you and me, have Embiid as one and two. Uh, our three spots totally different because you have Dame and I have Kawhi, right. and then we both have Giannis and Jokic, but we have the order flipped up. Other than that, I actually was kind of surprised uh, for our MVP about how similar they were. I thought <laughs> yes. we were going to have like four different, like three different guys at some point, but actually. I think the hard part this year is just, again, like, that trick. Like, you're basically picking nits here, trying to figure out, like, oh, yeah. like the fact that we're leaving off a guy like Curry or even a guy like Harden. Like, Harden this year, excluding the five Rockets games, is averaging a triple-double every game. I would game. love to ask you a question about the Brooklyn Nets. I think that Harden and Durant are the most similar offensive duo that we've seen since Magic and Kareem. When those players were playing together... There was a guy bringing up the floor and getting the other two teammates involved and setting them up for their shot. 
which one of those two players do you think is the most important offensive piece for that team? Because that's where I drew the line between Harden and Durant. I honestly don't know the answer. I think that if you're, I think Harden in the regular season drives the offense in terms of being the ball handler and the whole system around him. Because again, right. this year we've seen that he's actually been a little bit more of like an unselfish playmaker, like a little bit less of the step back three. Yep. But in terms of like, basically, I think the system is built around him. But in terms of like guy you want and the la- at the end creating the shot, the shot, you would take yeah. that. You would take KD. So if I had to use your analogy, I think Harden would be in the Magic side because Magic yep. was always the yes. prime ball handler. He was always the one initiating. And then they all Kareem, except for like the last couple of years, was basically like the go to guy. Like even at like age 41 or what it was a 42 what, is when he made yeah all, uh, all NBA. yeah but even in that 88 season or 88 finals against the pistons the last shot in game six went to kareem even yeah. though he was basically like nursing home level right. of old and i i think I, that's the analogy i would go with I, did you have something along that or yeah so that's essentially where i was going with that analogy because they're the closest thing that i've seen to that duo and i also think that the showtime nets is the most similar thing to the showtime lakers where it's just hope for a miss, and then get out, run, and get right into your offense. So, for me, I just don't think that either of those players have the offensive and defensive impact uh, for me to be able to put them up there with my most valuable players if neither one of them has played really the full season. I understand that James Harden has looked like the best player. I, I, still, I, best still, can't excuse, player. I still can't excuse that Rockets thing from the earlier this year. You cannot. Rockets thing from earlier this season, and... I don't know how much I can extrapolate from the Brooklyn Nets as a whole when KD, Kyrie, and Harden have only played seven games together, but they've been an awesome team when Kevin Durant has not been on the floor. I don't know if that really helps Durant's case, but in the case of Harden, he also has the tinted Rockets beginning of the season. and the Which was they- way more uglier than we thought it was, given some recent reporting, yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> Although I will say it was kind of a touching moment when he was able to go back to Houston and they were able to give him the tribute video. Absolutely. So let's actually move on here because we actually spent a lot of time on the MVP <laughs> thing. But I always, I always again, love these uh, award oh, show type deals. So the All-NBA team is definitely interesting this year because a lot of the MVP cans we just mentioned are going to be on those yeah. teams. So there's not really a, like much debate happening here. At least with, like, we can argue for the first uh, first two of the All-NBA teams. So I, the way I like to do this is let's start at the center position since there's only yeah. three spots. It's just a quick one. So I had, for my candidates, Embiid, Jokic, and Gobert. Um, I think we can make the case that those are the three best centers all year. They have all the numbers, the narrative, all that stuff. What was your order? Because mine was Embiid for the All-NBA first team, uh, Jokic for the second team, and then Gobert for the third team. So one of the things with the two centers, obviously Gobert is going to be third team All-NBA for me. When it came to picking between those two centers, I honestly came to a flip of a coin. And then after that, I decided that, you know what, this coin is not going to help me make this decision. Let's just put both guys on first team. Because the way that I see uh, the All-NBA lineups working is... I can throw out the positions if as long as the team that's on the court makes sense. When you have both of those guys working with uh, offensive floor raisers and ceiling raisers when it comes to off-ball movement, back cuts, screens, and guys that can pull up and shoot it, I think that I'm able to have both of those players on the floor at the same time because you can still work a defensive anchor and build a defensive system around Joel Embiid. And then offensively, you can let Jokic be... A primary, if not secondary, creator offensively. 
So who did you have as your other big man? Uh, as a like right. other big so, man, so I guess a second team big man then, right? Yes, my second team big man would be Giannis Antetokounmpo. So you have him as center, is yes, basically what I'm hearing. Even yes. though, so how? Uh, yeah, I guess like is. Small ball five. I guess yeah, that would works too. So basically, that's an interesting. I actually never like thought of it like that way. Uh, definitely interesting. But I guess we can agree that for sure, Embiid, Gobert, and Jokic are on your yep. teams. So let's move on now to the gauntlet of this All NBA debate, and that's the guard All spot, right. where absolutely there's about 15 guards that you can make a case for being all-NBA guys, and we have less than half of those spots. Correct. So I'd argue that the biggest debate I had was between two tiers. First off, all-NBA first team and second team. I thought there were four camps that you can make that they can be in any of that order. Um, I thought for the first so for the first team, I have Steph Curry and Damian Lillard. I think those are my two guys for the all-NBA first spot. And then for the second team, I have Luka and Harden. And I think you can make a case that any one of those four can either be on the first team or downgrade to the second team. So how did you end up with on that part of your uh, all-NBA so, roster? Right. So the first team guards, I also have Steph, but I do have, or excuse me, I, I have Dame, but I also have Harden in that spot. And again, and you can make a case, it was like picking nits for like yeah, that spot, yeah. Between those two players, I think that having Harden on the first team, the way that I was going to have both Jokic and Embiid, makes more sense as a team. And the offensive season that he has put together is just brilliant because he's showing the diversity of his game. We know what he was able to do as a floor raiser when it came to carrying the Houston Rockets. We've also seen him play as a team with other superstar teammates. In Brooklyn, the transition has been seamless. He's taken the ball over, taken over the offense that is the best in NBA history. And I think we've also seen him be a floor raiser carrying guy when Kevin Durant and or Kyrie Irving has been out of the lineup. So for me, I have him plus Damian Lillard, who's third on my MVP ballot, and those would be the backcourt players. And on your second team, do you have, I guess, Luka and Steph? That is correct. So, so again, I guess, but I guess, like, regardless of the specifics, we agree that there's a certain amount of guys. I think we can agree that those are guaranteed first or second team spots. I don't think they're going to fall to a third and, like, not make, quite frankly, not make the game either. Now, the fun part's the third team, because the third team, there are about eight candidates here that I was flipping coins with, trying to play around the lineup to figure out who deserves it. So, the guys that I have on my list for All-NBA third, or I guess for candidates to be All-NBA third team, Bradley Beal, Paul George, uh, Jalen Brown, Zach Levine, Ben Simmons, Chris Middleton, Chris Paul, Donovan Mitchell, Devin Booker, and then Devin Booker. So in other words, we have oh, eight yeah, guys. That's a lot of great guys, yeah. So I ended up, after deciding a lot of debating, ended up going with Bradley Beal and Paul George. Okay. So who brings the ball before? Uh, in that case, it would probably be Bradley Beal. Okay. But then again, like because of the way the All-NBA team is built, we have multiple guys who are yeah. ball handers. I think the case for Beal this year is that every year for the All-NBA bout, there's always one guy who puts up terrible numbers, or puts up great numbers for a team that's like a 500 team. We saw this like two years ago with like, Blake Griffin, yeah. where he like snuck in to be a third teamer, and he was the only guy on a team that was like under 500. Yeah. Every year there's always one of these, and I think this year it's going to be Beal, especially with the narrative like, oh, he's been snubbed in past years. It's not a case of like whether I want him to be on or not. It's just, champ. it's just going to be, and he's going to be the scoring champ yeah. too. Uh, the hardest part for me was, I feel like I just couldn't leave Beal and Paul George off the uh, All NBA team, especially Paul George. Like Paul George, if, if when Kawhi is not played, Paul George has been the alpha of the Clippers team that still kept its consistency and still been like a decent team in the in the Western Conference. Yeah, Paul George is shooting forty five percent from downtown on eight at, attempts a game and taking some very difficult season, attempts. He has been the, a better shooter than Steph Curry. As shocking and honestly wrong as that sounds. So, I also have Paul George on my third team All-NBA. I have Jalen Brown and Chris Paul as the two backcourt players at this point. 
I wanted to give it to Donovan Mitchell or Devin Booker over Jalen Brown, but the way that he has morphed his game into more of a screen-and-roll player as well as an improved uh, on-ball shot creator, without uh, Marcus Smart in the lineup for the Boston Celtics, the Celtics really lacked any kind of playmaking for teammates because Tatum is looking to get himself and really only himself involved. Jalen Brown has stepped up his offensive and defensive game to the point where I think that he has cemented himself as an all-NBA player. So I have him plus Chris Paul, uh, who will be bringing the ball up the floor for the third team, and we know what his case is. We, I, we made an outside case that he could be an, an MVP, MVP candidate. Yes, yeah. of course. The hardest part this year was I think I think Jalen Brown got slightly screwed over because I think if Tatum makes the All-NBA third team, I don't think Brown makes the All-NBA third yeah. team. I think just, like, or, excuse me, if he makes an All-NBA team, period, I don't think Jalen right. Brown will make it just because it's like the representation thing where it's like, also, do the Celtics... think Tatum is the better player. Yeah, and, yeah. Do the, and basically it's like, do the Celtics who have been a 500 team deserve two All-NBA guys on their team yeah. when other teams have been better and who have contributed, you can argue, yeah. more. And I think the toughest omission for me was definitely Chris Paul because the numbers have been even like not even like that overwhelming. It's basically an 18 and 9 every night with like basically 50, 40, 90 splits. Yep. But it's just been the impact he's made on the floor. Like it's not only the on court product, but rather the off court product too. Phoenix is a totally different team than they have been in the last decade yep. since the post Nash era. And I think that that matters in all NBA agreement. And it's again like the same case as it is last year with OKC where it took. Not only a floor raiser, but you can argue a ceiling raiser too. Yeah, and exactly. it's hard to leave that guy off the team. So if I had to pick, I'd maybe leave uh, Bradley Beal off probably in exchange okay. for Paul. But as of now, I'm going to have to plant my flag and say that uh, Paul is just not going to make it for this year for my NBA spot. Wow. Which is unfortunately a bit of a I'm, shocker, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a shocker. I also feel as if the playoffs thing is going to be really hard for me to factor in. Because if Bradley Beal does win the scoring title, which I think that he will... I'd have to do some research, but I don't know if he would be the first scoring champ to ever not be all NBA. Yeah, it would be it would I, it would be rare because all the guys have been like even like guy T Mac who's been like yeah. Here's the thing with the scoring title: if you look at NBA history, we've always thought of scoring champs as essentially top ten or borderline top ten players. The only guys that I can think of who would barely have been on that list would be like George Gervin. But and even then, since, and even then, he was still the best player in multiple yep, conference exactly, finals teams. Yes, so it's not exactly. even like. That's the problem with this year with Beal, though, is that you can argue that while his numbers are great, it's just the it's case where, like, fast. your team can only go so far as Beal being your best player. Right. Beal is your second best player. You'd have, have one of the best teams in the league. Yeah. But as your alpha guy, especially on, like, I think his defense tends to get a little underrated of how bad it is. Yeah. I think the shot creation, while great, is also a little bit overrated, too, yeah. just because he is a bit of a ball stopper sometimes. He's improved the playmaking over the years, but it's not like an, right. it's not like a Tier 2 or even Tier 1 playmaker. So I think there's a case that Beal, you can poke holes in, but just from a pure numbers perspective and like even like just like the scoring style you, it's, you can't leave the guy who scored the most points in the league off the roster it's just hard to do that if you're a voter yeah absolutely so those would be the top three guys or I guess CP3 Jalen Brown Paul George and then the fourth guy who I have on your third team yes so let's back up quickly let's actually do the forwards from both first team and second okay. team first because again similar to the guards another tough case where for me I had yep. four guys and two spots for the first team yep. so for my first team I had LeBron and Giannis okay. um the toughest omission honestly on that team was putting Kawhi um, or excuse me, putting Kevin Durant as not as a second teamer mm -hmm. because if he had played the normal amount of game, you can make a case that he was better than Giannis this year. Just from a pure like he's putting up the same numbers as MVP campaign. Yes, correct. And not only just on the amazing efficiency, but even like when Kyrie was missing and Harden before the Harden trade, Durant looked like he was, was on, on ten dribbles. Yeah, he was on fire. 
Um, so, and then for my second team, I have Kawhi and Durant. I, I'm guessing you have those four on your All-NBA ballot at some point. Or? Right. So, with Giannis not being on the first team All-NBA because I had both of the big men, I have chosen to make Giannis my small ball five, and I'm also going to have KD and Kawhi on the second team. Gotcha, okay. Then the backcourt for the second team was Luka and Steph. Yeah. So right And we'll write it down one more time before right, we go. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my second team is going to be Giannis, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic. The way that I see that team playing out is essentially close out on shooters, rotate, rotate, rotate. I think that if Steph Curry and Luka Doncic are your backcourt defenders, you have to have versatile wings and some kind of paint protection component to that defense. I think that I would be able to field an awesome team if those are the five. That's why I was able to validate all of them for that specific team. Who did you have as your All-NBA third team forwards? Because similar to the guards, another tough right. one here, where there were even like some guys who... I, I feel like I, ca- I uh, yeah. uh, contradicted myself here with my picks here. Like, So uh, do you want to take a stab at which two players I put? or? I will state mine. So I put Paul George in the forward spot because okay. he's going to be able to do the kinds of things for this team that I would need him to do. And okay. I also have, in, that, uh, in the power forward spot, I have... Chris Middleton because when you have... Wow, we have totally two different guys. All right, here's the thing. So Chris Middleton has always been a 50-40-90 sharpshooter who can get into the mid-range, score from three, get to the bucket. One of the things that he has been much better at this season is pick-and-roll playmaking as well as being a guy who takes the high ball screen and can create... Especially in the clutch, too. There's been a lot of times where Giannis will play off the ball and like he'll set the screen, but Middleton will be like the guy taking the shot at the end of the games. So, yes... That duty is part of the reason why they also brought in Drew Holiday for the team. is just an extra uh, above-average shot maker. But Chris Middleton has been that guy for this team. He's also setting a career high in assists. We already know what he can do when it comes to scoring. The free throw shooting is still there. He's still a 50-40-90 guy. I think that he has done enough for me to say that he is now an All-NBA player because he's now the total package offensively and defensively, which, by the way, they have put... Middleton as essentially the guy who replaced Drew Holiday when he was out as the guy who's always going to guard the other team's lead scorer. As long as he is able to take away the first movement when it comes to those kinds of scores, which he's been essentially perfect at this season, I think that's enough for me to put him on the all-defensive or. Uh, on the all, all NBA all, ballot, all yeah. NBA ballot for third team, yeah. How about you? So I had Jimmy Butler and Jason Tatum. Oh, okay, okay. So basically, I think they both made the same All NBA spots last year um, as a third team. I'm pretty sure. Um, if not, if not, I'm wrong. Well, they're making it this year for me. Um, the case for me, honestly, I just think that Jimmy Butler, he's the reason that the Heat are surging right now in the standings. He's basically averaging a triple-double. It's a 21-8-8 stat line. And the case has been when the Heat haven't had him, we've been yeah. terrible. And when he have had him, they've been great. And the case for Tatum, I think, is that Boston, while not as great as we once thought they were, given like their underwhelming roster, right. Tatum, you can argue, still been the best player on the team over Brown. Uh, not only on a numbers-wise, just because how the system is built. It's yep. built around Tatum. Tatum. And they've been good this year when he's been on the floor. And honestly, the numbers, even ignoring the numbers, he's been a better, you can argue, uh, argue we say he's been a better player than Jalen Brown. I think that matters, um, especially because I think that the rest of the forward, the toughest omission for him is probably Chris Middleton. Okay. Just because yeah. not only um, of the numbers, but also because like the uh, the way the Bucks are standing. Like, if the Bucks were a second yeah. seed, I'd argue that Middleton should be an over Tatum. 
because they'll give it to him because like you know that representation thing with the uh, the standards, yeah. how the team is performed, yeah. Yeah, the tough the toughest part for me is gonna be that Butler pick because. I didn't put. I guess it's just again the way the MVP and ballot works in the All NBA thing, where it's where it's like I didn't I didn't put Kevin Durant on my own, uh, MVP ballot, yeah. but then he's only put a little bit of games. I'm putting him as the second team. Similar to this year, where Jimmy Butler's missed time because of COVID and then some injuries, yep. but yeah, when he's been on the floor, that he'd have been absolutely fantastic. Almost like that finals over there were a couple years, a couple months ago. Yeah, that was essentially. Let's see, that would have been in October, so that was just a few months ago. Jimmy Butler's season has been obviously up and down. He's missed time i think that was mainly the reason that i did not have him on my all nba ballot because i also think that this season bam Adebayo has been the best player on the miami heat so if a team was not necessarily where i thought they could have been at the beginning of the season or the way that they looked even in the bubble last year it's hard for me to really make that case over a guy like chris middleton who has actually taken his game to the next level offensively we know what Jimmy Butler does, both offensively and defensively, uh, a leader throughout the full 48 minutes, but that was a really tough uh, uh, omission of mine, and I guess if there was a fourth team All-NBA, I'd probably have him on there. So just for the viewers out there, what's I'm going to start with me first, then you can go, but just run down your All-NBA first team, second team, third team, et cetera, just so we can yeah. get like a queer picture. Yes. So starting with the third team, the backcourt is Chris Paul and Jalen Brown. The forwards, I have Paul George and Chris Middleton, and the centers, Rudy Gobert. On the second team, my front court features three forwards, and Giannis Antetokounmpo will play a small ball five. I also have Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard. Then the backcourt is Steph Curry and Luka Doncic. On the first team, I have Dame Dalla Lillard, who I think is third in the MVP race, James Harden, who has shown that he can do everything offensively, regardless of what system and what he's asked to do. Then I also have LeBron James and the two big men, Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid. So for me, so my All-NBA third team at the guard spots, I have Bradley Beal and uh, Paul George. At the forward spots, I got Jimmy Butler and Jason Tatum. And at center, I got Rudy Gobert. Uh, moving on to my All-NBA second team, I got James Harden and Luka Doncic. At forwards, I got Kawhi and Kevin Durant. And at center, I got Nikola Jokic. And then lastly, for my All-NBA first team, it's Steph Curry, uh, Damian Lillard, uh, Giannis, LeBron, and then Embiid at the center spot. So right. definitely, I def definitely, it's the case with always with the All-NBA team. Uh, most people have like the same amount of players like in that first seven spots. And after that, it is just a variation upon variation of, in terms of who is picking who. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many good choices. And honestly, it's the kind of year where you feel bad because there's going to be so many all-NBA snubs who had all-NBA caliber seasons. And there's guys we haven't mentioned. Like, Levine is averaging a 36-6 and yeah. six this year, and we haven't even mentioned his name for just... He should be, like, all-NBA four. Like, we literally... We should make an honorary all-NBA four team one day. Jeez. Like, uh, even a guy like Ben Simmons, for instance, like, do you reward a team in Philly who's basically been the best team in their conference with two guys? Kyrie Irving. Yeah, and Kyrie yeah. Irving's averaging over 30 points on, like, the most efficient career... Yeah, uh, efficient he's numbers he's 20, had. 28, 6, and 6. And, like, here's the thing. He is the third cog on the best offense in league history... But at the same time, Kyrie Irving has been just brilliant. a great offensive player on his own. Yeah. Yeah. 
So let's just set a, let's set a couple quick hitters here before we wrap up today's episode. Um, in terms of the rest of the awards, I actually think that they're pretty straightforward. Um, yeah. We can start at Rookie of the Year. I think it's no question LaMelo Ball. LaMelo Ball. I think you can't make any on, a case for any other guy. He's to have a Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Oscar Robertson type rookie year. It's been awesome. In terms of DPOY, I got Rudy Gobert. I think you are also in agreement with that just because of right. the system built around the Jazz as well as the fact that the numbers show that yep. without him, they are absolutely terrible and with him, they are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, perfect. So... When he's been on the floor, they've been the third best defense in basketball. And when he's been off the floor, they've been the 21st best defense in basketball. The way that they use him as not only a rim protector, but a paint protector, and basically everything inside of 15 feet is a strong contest from him. He has extended his defensive range out to the 20-foot range where he can contest shots out there. I think that what he has done by taking his defensive game to the next level or even returning to where he was a couple of years ago when he was two-time defensive player of the year already, the fact that his team instantly becomes a different defensive team when he steps off the floor versus stepping on, he's been awesome. He's my defensive player of the year as well. Coach of the year, I also have another jazz guy. I think Quinn Snyder is, is an easy yeah. shoe in this year. You can make a case for a couple other guys. Like Tom I th- Williams, Tom Thibodeau. Yeah, I was even going to yeah. say, oh, I forget the guy's name, but the Memphis Grizzlies coach. Ty, uh, oh, uh, uh, J- Jacob. Jenkins, or, yeah, yeah, Jenkins. Yeah, yeah. Because that was a team where after Jaw got injured in like game three or four, they were like, oh, tank it, tank it. And they've basically been an above 500 team. Yeah. You can make a French case for him. Taylor Jenkins, that's the Taylor, name. Yep. Um, so that's another one. The weird one I had trouble with, or we can do most improved player, because I have Jeremy Grant. Um, you can make a case for a couple other guys. I think Jalen Brown should be on that list. Um, Christian Wood, you can argue, uh, on the list just because of the volume he's put out. Like, who'd you have as your guy? So I ultimately went with uh, Jeremy Grant as well. I would have given a runner-up vote to Julius Randle. Oh, and I forgot about Randle, too, yeah. Yeah, so both of those guys. But Jeremy Grant, the fact that he has doubled his point total from any other season. But keeping the efficiency that he had throughout his career. Yes, exactly. Keeping the efficiency and the fact that he's able to make the Detroit Pistons watchable, even if they are still at bottom feet. Watchable with, like, a stress on that last couple, on that last E, yeah. Watchable with, like, yeah, asterisks on both ends of the word. But I would say that what he has done is just taken his game and actually fully unraveled it. Uh, when he's not being used as essentially a role player who is only used for defense, he has been awesome with the Detroit Pistons. He is also my vote, although you can make an, a case for Julius Randle. You can also make the case for Jalen Brown. You can even make the case for Nikola Jokic, who for yeah. the first time looks like a borderline top five player, and you're thinking to yourself, well... And, guy's the limit with him. And a guy we haven't mentioned yet, Colin Sexton, who Shea's took a big, big bad. leap this year that I think everyone's just forgotten about because Cleveland started to tank a little bit. There's a lot of guys. Yeah, there's a lot of guys this year. There are a lot of, yep, for sure. Let's move on to the sixth man of the year, and that's our okay. last award, because I think that's like honestly one of the tougher ones. I think there's a okay. two-person race for this one. I've got Jordan Clarkson as my runner-up, actually, okay. not my winner. I got Thaddeus Young as okay. my winner right yep. now for the sixth man of the year. Yeah, you yeah. can make a case that either one of them deserves yes, to win. Yes. Especially, I think I think the Clarkson case is probably going to be the favorite because of the point total right and now, the probably. and the hot shooting, which yep. just like finds ways to be more appealing than like a guy like Thaddeus Young, <laughs> yeah. where it's like a he just fits the mold as like the small ball five that everyone, every contender on earth dreams of having, yes. and the yeah. guy that can shoot threes, be a playmaker, but also like not be a ball stopper, yep. just do enough on scoring where defense has to respect it, and he can do like the guard one through five because yeah. he's literally rejuvenated his career in Chicago this year because of the market injuries and the Carter injuries. They've literally just said we're playing Thaddeus at small ball five. He's gonna be the right. the poor man's Draymond of our team. Right. So this is really a debacle when it comes to those two as well. I don't think that I would have Thaddeus Young as second on my ballot because here's the thing with sixth men. Their job is often to come in and be a bucket. 
when you look at the way that the award has kind of gone, it's been Lou Williams, it's been Jamal Crawford. Yeah, no, I, agree. I think Hill, I would pick Thaddeus Young as my sixth man, but if I had to see okay. who would realistically be chosen, it's probably Clarkson for sure. Yeah, Especially he's like basically scoring, what, like 23 points per 36, or it's His like 20 points. Yeah. It's 25 point it's, ridi- it's yeah, absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, so uh, Jordan Clarkson is leading all bench scorers. Second on the list is Eric Gordon. But I will say... I think that second on my ballot would be Terrence Ross of the Orlando That is Packers. very, yeah, very interesting pick right yes. there. So the reason that I think I have him there is the fact that the Orlando Magic bench unit has almost been better. And you can always say there's an argument for Rudy Gay, Patty Mills, Jakob Pertl. All those guys, yeah. Any of the players on the Spurs who have eight guys averaging double digits. And who have, like, the on-off splits of, like, they're, like, a 20-point way yeah. better team. Like, yeah, there's a exactly. net rating, a total net rating then, difference. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing with the Thaddeus Young case is the Bulls are five points better, and they're on, essentially, a 50-win pace for just the time that he is on the court. So, with that being said, there's a case for lots of different guys, but Jordan Clarkson would be the gold medalist on my podium at this point for sixth man of the year. The way that the Jazz are using him is essentially come in the ballgame, be a bucket, and is there anybody who honestly has a more green light style of play when it comes to coming off the bench? He shoots the ball like he is Steph Curry. Obviously, he isn't, but his per 36 would tell you that he's launching 11 threes a game. And the way that he has come in and shot the ball uh, 38%, he's getting the bucket and finishing at almost 50% inside of the three-point line. His shooting splits are there. He's doing everything efficiently. And he's even becoming more of an improved playmaker when it comes to pick-and-roll offense. And when you play with guys like Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors, the Jazz essentially either get a dunk, layup, or a three-point attempt every possession. And Jordan Clarkson has perfectly fit the mold for what the Jazz need when Conley and or Mitchell and or Ingles is not the primary creator. All right, two more questions uh, for you here. So first off, obviously, Blake Griffin recently signed by the Brooklyn Nets. Um, how much of a deal, a big deal do you think this is? Because I feel like this has been a little bit overrated uh, in terms of, like, we just realized, like, you know Blake Griffin hasn't dunked in about two and a half years, right? Or the fact that he shot under 40% like, half his games this year. Like, what do people think? Like, this is just more like a name thing than, like, a points or, like, yeah. a production type of guy. Like, what are, what are the Nets doing with getting Blake Griffin here? Like, how is this helping their team? So, per basketball reference... Blake Griffin is the only player in the entire league who is 6'7 or taller, takes at least 10 shots per game, and has not dunked a ball yet this year. Absolutely ridiculous. That's, yeah, that's ridiculous to me. The fact that the guy essentially made a name for himself in college as a dunker and then was jumping over cars, winning dunk contests, doing everything perfectly during the first few years of his career, that kind of play has subsided for him, and now that he's going to Brooklyn, he is going to be used as a guy who comes off the bench. I'm going to be interested to see how they run their offense when it comes to having the three stars on the floor, and who are those two other guys? Is it Joe Harris and Jeff Green? Is it Bruce Brown and Blake Griffin? I'm interested, yeah, and I'm interested to see not only that, but also yeah. where where is Blake fitting on the court? Because, right. like, I guess it, the Nets are doubling down the all-offense approach because I don't think Blake is bringing anything on defense. Nope. Uh, I mean, they need a five because I think he's going to be better than Nick Claxton, let's say. But like, DeAndre what? Jordan seems to be washed. And DeAndre Jordan has like been washed for like five years awesome. now. Yeah. So I just don't. But I just don't get what the signing is, especially in the playoffs, where it's like, what does he like? 
Where is the value coming in besides right playmaking and like streaky shooting? I really don't know because especially on offense, like I guess he's just gonna stand the corner, like because you can't have him underneath the basket because he can't dunk for his life or finish or get to the foul line. So yeah, it's gonna be a little bit of an interesting situation. Um, one last question for you here, just a quick one. Uh, jazz uh, contenders or pretenders? Like, just give me like your one right, minute right, jazz right. feel so this year. The one minute jazz feel would go. They are contenders because as long as you can pass it like the Spurs and shoot it like the Warriors, you will have a chance. The Jazz are taking and making more threes than any team ever. They're shooting essentially 40% as a team. They have five different guys shooting at least 40% from deep, and Donovan Mitchell shooting at 38%. So the fact that they're able to do that offensively, and you also have a defensive anchor and other players who are able to step up defensively. Like Royce O'Neal is a guy who doesn't get enough attention just because people don't watch basketball. They watch the ball. But when you watch him play defense, he's essentially taken over the role of Drew Holiday as the player who leads the league in time spent guarding the other team's lead scorer. The Jazz are able to do things offensively and defensively. They're brilliantly well coached. The fact that they always come into games prepared and are the best third quarter team in the league by a wide margin. The Jazz are on pace to join the 71 Bucks, the 72 Lakers, the 96 Bulls, and the 86 Celtics, who are known as... The four of the four, great four seven the, teams, yeah, or something like that, yeah. Four of the greatest teams ever as teams that have a third-quarter scoring margin of at least 4.0 or more. So I think you couple all of those things with the fact that they have four main guys that you can run offense through, the fact that they win with no matter who's on the court, and they've been a relatively healthy team. I don't know if that's necessarily sustainable. They've only had four different starting lineups. The entire Whereas my season. Heat have had like eight, like you know, <laughs> yeah. twenty five yes. of tw- right. thirty two or something yeah, crazy. Yeah, exactly. So the Jazz have essentially been a team that may have dodged COVID or the fact that they got COVID first of of the entire league. Gobert and Mitchell. That's probably in the rearview mirror at this point. Taking the fact that they had a bad, ugly loss in the bubble. That taste doesn't sit well with them, and they've came out to prove pretty much everyone wrong this far. What were your th- so we're only two days out from the uh, Rudy Gobert game anniversary, yes. where we all basically the league shut down. And we were all just shocked in our seats, especially as NBA yeah. fans. What was your where were you when that happened? Because I want right. to do a little segment on that in the uh, next episode of the Dunkin' with Dom Pod. But I want to get your take on this yes. as a jazz guy and as like. How did you deal with that, especially as a fan, given not only that there was the Gobert playing around with the ordeal, yeah. the ten, the pro, uh, potential chemistry problems with Mitchell and Gobert? Like, what were your thoughts about that like at the time? So, when I first heard the news, I was actually walking back from a radio station, and I remember a friend calling me and telling me, Brr, Hey, Micah, do you know that Rudy Gobert just shut down the entire NBA? I'm like, well... I guess we're playing defense now again. (laughs) The league hit the pause button then. I don't really know where Gobert contracted it or how it began, but it was shocking, for sure. The league suspended that night. Nobody knew how it was going to return, if we were going to see the end of the season one way or another. I'm glad that the Jazz have been able to put that behind them. Mitchell and Gobert, as much as people want to question their relationship, Those two are essentially best buddies at this point. I think that the Jazz uh, fully look forward to being able to play with a chip on their shoulder and have the easiest strength of schedule remaining. Hopefully we'll be able to lock up home court advantage. And Salt Lake City 
is one of the tougher arenas for opponents to play when it comes to fans and uh, playing at elevation. So looking at that, the fact that the teams in the 90s were able to get to the finals after years of hardship battling through the West, but never were able to get over the hump, Donovan Mitchell has a chance to place himself in some elite company when it comes to all-time great players if he were to able if you were able to bring a championship there and I think that they have the pieces to do it whether or not we're like one piece away and more of a LeBron frustrator that mold of a player that is probably the one question that I have when it comes to the team because all of their questions I think have been answered what happens when a guy isn't shooting well what happens when the whole team isn't shooting well? They rely on the defense. What if a player is missing? Well, just next guy in. The Jazz have a lot of different ways to attack offensively and defensively should have the pieces to hold up against some of the premier talent in the league. I think they have what it takes. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining the pod. Uh, another episode, another successful one. Always enjoy doing these award shows and definitely some NBA talk. So thank yeah. you for coming. Yeah, totally. Thank you. All right, and for the rest of you who are new out there, uh, be sure to subscribe to the Dunk of a Dom podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Uh, new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching, and yes, uh, stay tuned for the next episode.